Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to Second Captains at the Irish Times on the day that Novak Djokovic is surprisingly knocked out of the Australian Open. This happened in the late morning, early afternoon, I think, by the time that match finished up. Already, people are asking questions about what Djokovic's high-profile coach, Boris Becker, is bringing mm. to the table here. I hope there's no knee-jerk reaction, though, Murph, because poor old Jimmy Connors lasted just the one match with Maria Sharapova last year, if you remember that one. That, that was doomed from the start, though, that one. I'm loving all the old-school guys getting involved with the world's best players. Roger Federer has turned to Stefan Edberg. Yeah. Ivan Lendl is credited with much of Andy Murray's success. You've got Becker bringing down Djokovic from within. <laughs> Add in more 80s and 90s names, that's what I say. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, where's Richard Krychek? And why isn't the world number 10, whoever he is, getting in touch with Richard Krychek? Mark Filipousis, I'm sure. Good to- I mean, a good time. You'd have a good time anyway with Mark Filipousis. It's good. Isn't that Filipousis? It's good, Miss yeah, yeah, something like that. That was it. Uh, Jeremy Bates, if you want to go real old school on, he could get involved with, you know, the slayer of Novak Djokovic, San Vavrinka. Sounds good. But who you, know, else, you know, who else is going to coach top players and top players? Yeah, you know, show us your who medals. Else can, who else can tell these guys what to do apart from, I suppose they used to be coaches for that kind of thing, but... Not for Federer, though. Federer hasn't had a coach for a while. I think Federer just wants a friend. Federer is self-taught. Yeah, I think he'd just like a friend to hang around with, you know? That's someone why on a, Someone on a... Like, Tiger Woods, in ways, would be an ideal coach for Roger Federer. You know, because they're mates already. Yeah, from the Gillette campaign. You know, I'm sure they'd have a good time, you know. And also, Roger would feel like he could talk to someone on a similar level to himself. That's basically all he needs. Well, even Edberg is only a short term. I think it's a a 10-week job. Mm. He's just spending a few weeks with Edberg at the start of the year, glean a few pearls of wisdom from Stefan and then move it on. Yeah, exactly. Big news today. Ken Early is a new favourite sportsman. His name is Richard Sherman. He's a defensive player with the Seattle Seahawks mm. American football team. And boy, was he pumped up after making a late play to seal victory over the San Francisco 49ers in Sunday. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. So a lot of adrenaline pumping through him at that point. He isn't often, he isn't always as pumped up as that, but he's usually quite close. He's very abrasive. Here he is talking to Skip Bayless, ESPN host. So I'm, I'm the top of my field. So I'm all pro. I'm the best, one okay. of the best 22 players in the NFL. You're, you're going to brush it off, but I don't think you're the best 22 anything in sports and in media and well, anything. I think you debatable. think more of yourself than you actually can, you know, prove. But okay. I'll, Do you think you're like better than Darrell like Revis is right now? In my in my 24 years of life, I'm better at life than you. Okay. So let's, All right. That's let's fair. Get, let's All get right. let's get down I, to well, that. Let's, let's stay. Test. Let's not get personal here. I just no, want to no, know. Just not. It's do you, not do you think you're better than Darrell Revis is right now? I'm better than you. <laughs> I'm better at life than you. Is a really good phrase. Okay, that's fair. Says Skip Bayless. It really annoys Skip Bayless so much. He just cannot take it because you know what, Richard Sherman's got a point. <laughs> well, he's got a real he, and substantive point that he's better at life than Skip Bayless. I don't think you can say to anyone that you don't know intimately that you're better at life than him. 
You know, I don't, I don't think you can prove that. But yeah. did you notice that Skip Bayless, the ESPN presenter, seemed more put out at the thought that he's not in the top 22 in his field? Media. Well, yeah. that's debatable. Yeah. He actually said that. Skip Bayless definitely. Oh, no, I actually missed that. Yeah, that was. Just, he said. That was part of what I, he well, that's debatable. That's debatable. You know, I am in the top 32. He definitely <laughs> thinks he's the greatest <laughs> sports player. There's another part of that conversation, which there's no point playing too much of it. We do to start to move on. But uh, where he says to him, What's your game? You know, what's your game, Sherman? You're always here in the media talking to the likes of us and shooting your mouth off. Are you just trying to set yourself up to have your own show someday? <laughs> it's like, ha- Hang on. The ultimate dream. The ultimate dream, according to TV presenter in uh, in America, is to present TV show, not to you know win, win a Super, Super Bowl, Bowl as Sherman's about to do. Well, maybe place. maybe he can parlay that Super Bowl success into something more substantial. He like could do, he could do both. Being a broadcaster in ESPN. Okay. I mean, it it did remind me. I mean, Sherman, you got to assume with with a guy like that. I mean, maybe he isn't very well adjusted. That's a, that's always a possibility. But usually, when you hear something like that, it, it is kind of showmanship, you know? Yeah. I mean, Zlatan Ibrahimovic copied it from Muhammad Ali, who copied it from Gorgeous George. And, you know, I mean, I, there was quite a similar interview by by Ali on Parkinson 40 years ago. Well, it wasn't a similar interview. It was a much better interview, which, which went on for about an hour. But at one point, Ali really lost the rag and started shouting at Michael Parkinson. Got annoyed by a line of questioning where, where Michael Parkinson produced a book by Bud Schilberg and made a point to Ali from the book which Ali interpreted as him being, you're trying to corner me, you're trying to trap me, uh, but pointing at Parkinson, you can't, you know, you can't do that. Basically, you can't, you can't trap me. You're nothing next to me. You can't beat me mentally or physically. <laughs> and Parkinson, I think, handles it a good bit better than Skip Bayless. All right, well, consider that a teaser for our US Murph chat on Thursday. Today, we're going to be talking to David Humphreys. Ulster are going pretty well this season. Uh, they have their home quarterfinal. They have a semifinal in their home country as well, if they were to... Um, managed to win the quarter. So it's all well set up. And he, of course, is a legend of Irish rugby, now director of rugby there. So uh, always an impressive guy to talk to. We'll chat to him a little bit later on. First up, though, Kieran, the rules of golf. Mm. You a fan? Uh, no. Uh, well, I like the rule where you have to count the number of shots uh, that you take from the tee to the green. <laughs> and then you measure that against someone who you're playing with or someone else in the same competition as you. I mean, that's a rule that I like. That aids the competition. You know, it, it aids in our understanding of who's who's a better golfer. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all the other ones I could take or leave and do every time I step out onto a golf course. Some of them are stupid, according to if I, Rory if I, McElroy, who was pinged over the weekend. Yeah, if I drive, if I take a drive and it ends up behind a bush, I'm probably going to pick that ball up and throw it onto the, out onto the fairway because it's a lot more fun to hit from the fairway than it is from, you know, behind a bush. I mean, that's just, that's just me. That's my rule. That's the Kiro Murphy rule. I can see I'm going to get no sense out of you on this one. So luckily, Maliki Clerken of the Irish Times has spent a good bit of time on tour and uh, joins us now. Maliki, thanks very much for popping down from your hut upstairs. My hut upstairs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very disrespectful right off the, well, right off the uh, charts As there. long as the listeners know that I'm upstairs from you. Lot. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. Actually, yeah. Above on the chain of command there. I think everybody these days wants to take away a lesson from a, a big broad lesson from every big sports story <laughs> in this case is the lesson I don't know maybe there are one or two but is one of them that golf is very proud of its rules even the stupid ones oh I would say especially the stupid ones <laughs> uh, I love golf I've played it since I was seven years old I love watching it I love gambling on it sorry ma'am um, <laughs> but it is it's a great great sport but man is it let down by not so much the rules, although, you know, the rules are, are kind of the root cause, but the enforcers. Like, golf would be a great game without the golfers, mm. I always think. Um, golf has so many really silly, tiny little rules. Um, and the whole idea of all of them, the people who defend them, say that they're there, you know, to protect the integrity of the game because it's a sort of it's a self-policing game. I always think there's an incongruity there between, you know, we have all these rules to protect the integrity of the game and then golfers are the first to shout and roar about how theirs is the only game with any integrity in it at all. Yeah. Which you would think, well, if there's so much integrity, why do you need so, so many, many bloody rules, rules yeah. to, to keep them going? Like, but the, the it, it goes back to the roots, actually, of, of my real problem with golf. I always think that golf... It, they're like there's such a, a snobbishness within golf, 
and it's it's it is there from the beginning. Mm. Like it was there from from the the gentleman golfers of Edinburgh who drew up the first rules in year dot or whenever it was. I always think that like golf is like golf is like being in a like an old country house where you're afraid to touch anything. Mm. You know. <laughs> You're really not. It's, it's very yeah. nice. You know, you love the time you spend there. Yeah. But would you live there? Yeah, exactly. You know, under yeah. The, those conditions. Yeah, and you, you, you know, you, you, you love going back, and you kind of forget it when you're away. Yeah. But then you go back, and you're, you go, all oh, right, I'm not allowed to do this. All oh, right, I'm not allowed to do that. Um, and that is that. Is, I mean, it's the only real negative to God. Does that make it all the more admirable the way that Rory McIlroy reacted to this? Simon certainly thinks it does. He came straight in on Monday and said that McIlroy's gone up in his estimation because <laughs> most golfers and Sergio Garcia was a bit like it earlier on in the week when he had a bit of an issue. He was aghast that he'd be called a cheat, but he did say, "Look, you know, I'm, I'm okay about people on TV watching." And yeah, uh, which I think is the most ridiculous thing in it's the world. So stupid uh, again, of, of golfers. Sport. Yeah, but but, but McIlroy was. Saying, Stupid rule. Um, tomorrow, he's, initially after that round, he said it's a stupid rule. I'll go to the gym. I'll work work yeah. out of my system. Came back, hit a really good final round. Felt just short of winning it, which made the story all the oh, better. Yeah. And then he said afterwards, he didn't back away at all. He said it's a moral victory for me. Did McElroy react the right way? I, I could imagine some experienced golfers looking at those quotes and going, "Rory, Rory." Rory. No, I think he, he reacted exactly the way he should. He reacted like a human being, mm-hmm. and uh, God knows, uh, you know, we have uh, we have. The outside world has has bit by bit chipped away at the human being Rory McIlroy is, and I think if we can hold on to one last vestige of his humanity, we're doing well. There are two things here. One, this is one of the stupidest rules, especially at the top level of the game. Um, the the whole idea of so where he transgressed was he had his foot on the white line that uh, lines out the the pathways for the galleries crossing the the fairway. Mm-hmm. Now the whole reason that that those lines were there in the first place were not for magnificent tournaments in Abu Dhabi where there is one day's rainfall in a year and where the whole idea of them was for. Uh, a, the old tournaments in the 70s where you had have real soft ground in, say, Sunningdale or something like that, mm. and crowds of 40,000 tramping across it and muddying up the place so uh, the, the ground becomes completely roughed up. The, the rule is there to help the players. It's there so that they don't have... Be, God forbid they would have to hit off a bit of scruffy ground mm. rather than the perfect fairway. So the rule is there to help the player. I, you know, I... How, no matter how dumb the rule is, I have very limited sympathy for Rory the other day. It w- you know, people think that th- there are stupid rules in all sports, but once you decide to uh, play, you submit to them. My father gives out all the time about the rule that you're not allowed to pick the ball off the ground in Gaelic football, and yet it is the rule. Yeah. Uh, he says, "Look, there is no point to it. What 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 earthly reason? What earthly reason does it serve? And yet it's there, so you have to deal with it." The it's not route. much of a defence for Paul Galvin if he decides to pick the ball up off the ground, for instance, <laughs> no, you know, exactly. which is fair enough. Yeah. But does the, Galvin always get picked out of it? He, he hasn't done <laughs> anything wrong in years, but anyway. He's, yeah, exactly. The first, the first I, 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 thing I, I, that popped into your head yeah, was, was Paul Galvin. I don't know why that was. Apologies yeah. to Paul Galvin. If <laughs> yes. but the whole, Sean Cavanagh is the... Yeah, if I said that, then... You're back in the Accused of Northern, anti-Northern bias there. But the whole point, like, Rory had his toe on this on the line... Shouldn't have had it there. He should have noticed it. The caddy should have noticed it. Especially since he, he was literally after just picking the ball and taking it back. He actually did himself a disadvantage because if he'd gone back further, he would have had a, a, a better uh, route into the pin. All of that is true, but you've got you to play to the rules, however mm. stupid the rules are. The first time you noticed something like this happening with Rory McIlroy, there was an incident back in... Was it his first Masters? It was his first Masters. It was... I think it was 09. I can't remember. I, I, I was at two Masters. Mm. I think it was 09 and 10. And he was, uh, it was his first one. He was, you know, very obviously the future of golf at this stage. Um, he had been playing on the, uh, on the Thursday and Friday and he hadn't played particularly well. It was his first Masters and, and he had kind of, you know, been blinded by the lights of it. But on the Friday evening... Close to the end of his round, I can't remember whether it was the 17th or the 18th, he went into a bunker um, and took two shots to get out of it. And in between his first and second shot, um, he kicked the sand. 
again. Such a, a tiny thing that it didn't even occur to him at the time uh, that it, it may have been a, a, a violation. Um, he signed his card and went back to his hotel. And I thought it was funny at the time that um, the master's organisers uh, tried to get on to him to say, you might have a case to answer here. And uh, hilariously, he was, they weren't able to get hold of him because uh, he had his phone turned off. And he was like 18 at the time or 19 at the time. And like his dad the next morning was going, bloody phone. He never has that bloody phone on. I can never talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the problem was that uh, he like he should have been thrown out of the tournament uh, right. because he had si- signed the wrong card. Um, it was a, a really silly rule. Uh, the, the rule is to stop people building a stance. So essentially it's to stop you, right, so say you hit the ball out of the bunker, it rolls back in, it's to stop you sort of stamping down the ground behind it so that you can get a better ball, a better shot at the ball. Uh, he had kind of smoothed the the sand over with his foot without even kind of looking down. He was raging at himself for not getting the ball out the first time. Mm. Um and he was just, the next morning, I was talking to him and he was going, I didn't even know, I didn't, it, like, I really, I, like, it's just a stupid rule. I, I'm, it would have been stupid that I would have been thrown out for something like mm. that. But, you know, we all, everybody in the sort of press room at the time and a few of the sort of older players are kind of thinking, well, you know, if this was some kind of journeyman, no mark American yeah, he mightn't uh, mightn't be here this morning. Well, that brings us to the Tiger angle to this, mm. and Tiger has repeatedly, uh, allegedly at least, um, had uh, a few uh, rule infringements over the last twelve to eighteen months. Mm. And there's definitely a perception out there that, well, you know, Tiger gets away with it. There are different rules. Okay, it might be self policing, but the very very top guys are policed a little more loosely than maybe one or two of the others. Uh, yeah, and uh, especially, Is that fair? Is that I true? think it's sir, I. <laughs> There is certainly there would certainly be this perception in America because it, say you take um, the major sports in America, they have a different attitude to some of these things that, that, than we do. Like we look at sport as kind of egalitarian and one rule, there's no such thing as one rule for one and one rule for another in general. Whereas they very, very obviously say in basketball are very keen to protect their main guys. You know, they, they, you know, they're LeBrons, they're Dwayne Wade's, uh, they're uh, Durant's. They protect those guys. And the same with the quarterbacks in, in, in American football. They, they protect those guys for the simple reason that they want, they need to sell these sports. And it's the big guys that sell these sports. And Tiger is still one of maybe a handful of maybe five and no more. And, and Tiger by a distance is, is, is the biggest of them that sells that sport in America. Mm. You know, take Tiger out, you know, they're not selling it on the back of Phil. They're, they're even not really selling it on the back of Rory. You know, Tiger is still the only one that, as they say, moves the needle. So you get a, a situation like, um, was it the Masters last year? Where he, where he took a, a drop that really, you know, was really on the, on the border of, of, of a legal drop. Um, and... There would definitely have been a feeling, you know, not so much that if it was somebody else, they would have got thrown out. But very blatantly, you could hear the next day the the commentators and everybody else say, well, this tournament is so much better with Tiger in it. You want Tiger here rather than Tiger not here. Yeah. The implication being, you know, it's going to However, be However we came up with this, yeah. this scenario that Tiger yeah. is still here is good for the tournament, therefore sure. and, it's the right decision. And, and, and it, it, there's a reasonable argument to be made that if you go to another tournament, the Tiger was uh, thrown out of last year, which was exactly last week's tournament in Abu Dhabi. Um, he played in it last year. He had, a, again, a rules violation where there was a bit of a grey area um, and where actually Tiger said afterwards that I can't remember, did he say that he didn't know the rule or that the rule was different in in America? There was some sort of grey area. They penalised him the two strokes and it meant that he missed the cut. So they, you know, and that was under the auspices of the European Tour. It wasn't under the PGA Tour. Yeah. You know? Has that impacted more on how Tiger is viewed within golf than the off-the-course controversy of a few years back? I think I always got the sense, and now I haven't really been on tour in uh, in a while, I always got the sense that people had made up their mind one way or the other with Tiger. Years ago, years ago, yeah. That that if they were a random 
for any length of time. They either decided that he was this insanely talented yet very cold guy or they kind of were one of the guys that, that got on with him. Um, I don't know that the... There's a lot made, actually, of how how players react to uh, people with, with like little rules violations. Like, there was a big talk of how Simon Dyson was was welcomed back there. Having sp- He's this English guy who, you know, a journeyman guy. Of course, journeyman guy, like he's earned millions. <laughs> but, but I, you know, a, sort of a scrappy English player, re- good uh, for three, four weeks a year. Um, he repaired a spike mark uh, la- last season and had to serve a two-month ban mm. for it at the end. And uh, his first tournament back, I can't remember, was it last week or the week before? I think it might have been the week before in South Africa. And there was a lot of talk of, you know, there was a great welcome for Simon. Everybody took him back. Um, and people make a big play out of this, you know, because, yeah. uh, because the one thing that you can't have as a golfer is your name to be mud. Um, and I think people sort of allowed, because the European Tour were very careful to say in their their judgment on him that they accepted that there was no intent for wrongdoing, but that he had he had to serve this ban. Yeah, it seemed it it, it seemed like that, and with with Tiger that that people are very quick to at least say to the outside world, "Well, we welcome this guy back. We don't want this smear to be over him." Yeah, I, I, I just, I find it strange, you know, they say he's, he's branded as, Simon Dyson, you know, cheated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could, he was branded for those two months that he's yeah. out of the game as yeah. a cheat yeah. in golfing terms. And yet, it was blatantly not anything that was done to gain a material advantage yes. over his yeah. competitor. And so, golfers have this uh, uh, very sort of self-righteous, almost pompous attitude towards totally, the fact that yeah. it's, that it's a self-regulated game, and yeah. as a result, we're sort of the paragons of virtue in professional sport. Yeah. And yet, this self-regulation is, in fact, contributing to people like Simon Dyson being called a cheat. Yeah, uh, allega- think, you know, uh, yeah. accusations against Rory McIlroy. I think it, is, I think it is interesting, you know, how they deal differently with different different people. You know, Vijay Singh has carried uh, a label with him for a long, long time. Uh, Colin Montgomery, the same. Uh, Why have those guys that's what, harder than others? It's, you know, it's just that, again I people maybe come to the table yeah. with with those players with certain ideas. Yeah, there would be. I mean, there would be a certain uh, school of thought that you know, VJ doesn't look like all the other golfers. Mm. You know, there would be a certain level of thought, and is not the most cuddly character in the yeah. world. It would have to be said. There, you think there could be a racial element? Little, little bit. You know, well, it, it, there would be. It there would be a certain rule of, uh, school of thought that would say, you know. Um, VJ is is different in an off is other in an awful lot of ways to a lot of golfers, and therefore um, that that tag has hung to him as it hasn't really because Colin Montgomery went on to become the European Ryder Cup captain. You know the very the very picture of an establishment golfer now. You know, yeah. sitting back on Sky and boring the arse out of all of us. <laughs> but he, you know, uh, and and yet you know his. Violation. I think it was in Indonesian Indonesia. It was. I can't remember how many years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was in, it was it was in the mid eighties. Oh no, well, Collins was. Oh, sorry, it, sorry, Collins I thought we were in the Sorry, yeah, uh, I was on silver. Was, was pretty bad, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, fair and and there would be like still a, a, a level of golf writer that would you know bring it up with him the odd time just to annoy him, you know, <laughs> which we can all get behind. That. All right, we started with Rory, so let's finish with Rory yeah. and taking a. a, a away the two-shot penalty that cost him the title is the most important takeaway as the Americans might call it that Roy McIlroy played quite well for four rounds I think so yeah I think back. so he'd back 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 now in fairness that tournament uh, he must hate the sight of it I think he's had what four top three finishes in it and a missed cut uh, like he absolutely should have won it at least twice at this stage and will feel that he actually did win it last week um, yeah he's just like I was watching it a good bit of it last week the the huge difference with him is his driving is so so on the money now, like he just splits the fairway and hits it so far, and when Rory's able to do that, he's a he's a seven iron to most greens and a seven iron he should have won put after an awful lot of seven iron or less. So he's he's really you know he he's on the way. Um, 
he won his first win on tour was in uh, Dubai, which is where they're going, not this week, but next week. Mm-hmm. So he w- he'd be a fairly short price for it, I'd imagine. Maliki, thanks for deigning to come downstairs. Kieran will assure Anytime. a safe passage back <laughs> up. I, I, I think we can all say, though, that last last Sunday, Pablo Larazabal may have finished first, but the real winner was the great game of golf. I, I think it was, yeah. We could all agree on that. <laughs> Maliki, take care. Thank you. Cheers. To celebrate the launch of the new Mazda 3, we're inviting you to join Jerry Thornley, Liam Toland and a panel of rugby experts as they discuss the upcoming RBS Six Nations. For your chance to attend this once-off Irish Times Six Nations event in association with Mazda 3, go to irishtimes.com. The all-new Mazda 3, proving everyone wrong. Shane Curran with the kick-out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He talked it, he fought it, he's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one with the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad. Just in defense of the sport of golf, every sport is looking for ways to stand out and be different and the more traditional ones such as golf I can kind of understand in ways why they play on traditional elements such as their very fastidious employment of the rules mm. yeah self-regulation yeah well see there is a bit of a I have a bit of a problem with self-regulation though because football tried this uh, for a couple of years whereby if a player is injured then the opposing team should knock the knock the the ball out of play to allow treatment for the injured player. That lasted maybe for about I don't know five minutes before it started get, started getting abused by the players. And now they've taken that power off back off the players, and it's still a total mess. Just just by by dint of giving the players enough power to self regulate, even for a couple of years, that has permanently ruined. That is that a bugbear of mine. I must say, the I, I saw this happens all the time. But in one of the games a couple of weeks back, player on one team, say it's Everton, gets injured or vaguely injured. An Everton player then kicks the ball out of play. The other team get the ball and throw it back to Everton. So does it's it's set up for a player to fake injury if he wants yeah. to because you're going to get the ball back even if it's your own team who kick it out. Uh, precisely. I mean, it, it it just it's an utterly ridiculous rule. The referee stops the game if he thinks that a player is seriously injured or there's a head injury or or something that demands immediate attention. Otherwise, injuries happen. Self-policing doesn't work again? Um, it depends on the context, I think. Self-policing is how civilization works, so... <laughs> Yeah, but in, at times, in, at times you do have to take responsibility for your, I mean, your own actions. The vast majority of the time, people are just you know, self-policing, you know. But in sport, well, sport is not like life, I suppose, because it's you know, it's clear, it's it's more obvious how you can win by cheating in sport. Yeah. Um, so there have to be these rules. There are more rules, I suppose. People you can are, win by cheating at life too. Oh yeah, but it's 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 harder to work out exactly how to do it. There's the, we, we, Sport as, is just as, as simple, a, yeah. much simplified. Yeah, as a society, we've decided to reward the people who have managed to figure out how to cheat at life yeah. and win yeah. by actually holding them up on a pedestal and saying, that guy there, he cheats brilliantly, so we should try and be like him. Yeah. But in sport, that's not what we In do. sport, it's difficult. You know, all these cameras. I mean, if, if, if you had 20 cameras recording your every move in life, you wouldn't cheat much. I wouldn't like it. Maybe they are already doing that, though. Isn't that the theory? Well, that's the that's the whole thing. It's, it's and of course, what do you have to worry about, Owen? As long as you're not breaking any rules, what do you what do you have to worry about if you're being watched every minute of every day? If every activity of yours is being logged and and uh, sent, you know, added to a dossier on you somewhere in a bunker in um, in Idaho, you know, what do you have to worry about as long as you're playing by the rules? Well, I stubbed my toe yesterday and cursed myself. I wouldn't want that scene by anybody. It well, wasn't a good scene. Well, don't be surprised if you, you start on getting... The phone. As long as you weren't on the phone when you did it, you're probably fine. You'll probably start getting marketing emails now for, <laughs> like, uh, insoles, foot support. X-rays, all these Different types of socks. Sort of uh, foam floors. How, that did, sort of thing. You know, how did they know? Yeah. yeah. How did they know? Coming up a little later. In fact, we'll tell you in a few minutes what's coming up a little later today. Before that, I'm really excited. We haven't had this for a while, Murph. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes and the puchine. Huh? And the puchine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, and 
County Meath, a place called Navin. So, ah, yeah, there we go. There, uh, there has been in recent times on uh, Peabazo community that has sprung up a series of repeat emailers to our Pierce Brosnan emigrant shoutout slot, which has kept us abreast of their movements in, uh, well, you know, typically verbose, but also it should be said humorous fashion. Uh, we spoke last year. I don't know if you remember this about a group of young lads who spent the summer working in a subway in Ocean City, Maryland, mm-hmm. and I may have abused uh, their choice of location for their J. I mean. Ocean City, Maryland. Out of all of the cities in, in America, you decide to go to Ocean Wasn't City, Wasn't there Maryland. someone else who went there in a pre- previous people people there, yeah. yeah, well, th- well, this led to a, uh, an email back from the lads telling me how brilliant Ocean City was. And then I got an, another email from a Maryland inhabitant with no connection to Ireland whatsoever, who, for reasons which I actually can't quite remember at the moment, had become a manic Dublin GA fan. The man's name was Andrew Grady, and he's back in touch this week on. Okay. Happy New Year's. Well, 17 days late. Just kept catching up on uh, uh, shows I missed during the holiday season. Y'all really do have an affinity for the great state of Maryland, don't you? Uh, first of all, the Ocean City talk this summer. Then the Scott Zolak sound bites. Scott Zolak, and then he does fill me in. Unicorns, rainbows, where's the beef? Remember that guy oh, yeah. from a couple of weeks ago? Uh, and now the Len Bias talk. My wife actually went to high school with Len Bias. Yeah, not a good time around here then. Anyway, he moves on to the dubs then quickly, thankfully. 20, 2014 dubs repeat. I'm ready for league play to start in two weeks. Best, Andrew Grady. League play is a great phrase, isn't it? I've never once heard Ord Stewart-Hor come and Luke Laskale, Porrick Duffy, referring to the start of league play in two no. weeks. But I do like it. And fair play to Andrew for uh, getting back in touch and a very happy new year to you. Hope uh, 2014 goes happy well new for year. you. And indeed for everyone in the great state of Maryland. Uh, Morris Geary was in touch, who said he enjoyed the Christmas sports pudding in Niamey, Niger, on Christmas Eve night, when I really should have been down the local. Oh, Morris, don't be sad. And I do hope that you're enjoying the start of 2014 in Niger. Uh, Paulo Shockness, has been in touch from the beautiful Bay Area in California, telling us that I've been listening to your shows for months now. A great way to keep up to date on what's going on back home. Uh, as an added bonus, I get to hear US Murph in the afternoon, in addition to checking him out on KNBR every morning along with his buddy, Paulie Mack. You don't need to tell me, uh, you don't need me to tell you, he knows his stuff. And I get a kick out of listening to him talk so passionately about our 49ers. Uh, I was transplanted here in 1991, so I'm claiming them. It's been a tough week for Brian. He said this before, uh, you know, the defeat on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll make sure to pass on your best wishes, Paul. Meanwhile, to the victors of Paul. So a very special P-Bezzle for Irish Seahawks fans in Seattle. Tom Murphy, Owen McHugh, Enda Sullivan and Brian Collins, who got in touch on Twitter. Uh, and now have a Super Bowl to look forward to and also they were kind of sticking it to US Murph a little I think so good luck to you and your hateful team guys <laughs> uh, that's pretty much all the people I have if you want to send in your photographs emails best wishes or Pierce Brosnan fan mail then hit us up on secondcaptains.irishtimes.com and if you want to be featured on this slot but you're actually still resident here in Ireland go on well then maybe you shouldn't be living here so, you know, just keep that in mind. As if US Murph doesn't have enough on his plate dealing with his Seattle-based in-laws. He's got, got Seattle-based Irish people having a go it to now. Him. It's not well. right. Now, coming up later today. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? So Richie Studio, Richie Studio, Richie Studio is in Sadler today. Richie Studio <laughs> is back in the Sadler. We're going to be talking about uh, well, the Chelsea Man United game. I guess was the big one of the weekend. We'll talk about that and some of the issues arising. Uh, from that, we're also going to talk a little bit about Jérôme Champagne. Excuse me? Jérôme Champagne. Oh, of course. Maybe bien sûr, Ken. The, uh, <laughs> the, man, <laughs> the man running up against Sepp Blatter for the FIFA presidency. Great name, too. Maybe not running against Sepp Blatter. Sepp Blatter hasn't confirmed that he's running yet, has he? Oh, we don't know if Sepp Blatter's got to run. Yeah. Sepp Blatter's getting out. So, um, uh, we're Into gonna... the Blatter void, then. Essentially, Pour his champagne. Jerome Champagne has, has announced his candidacy for FIFA president of the election is next year. Um, so we're going to talk to someone who was there at his little launch yesterday and see uh, 
what he's all about. Thanks, Ken. There's a good argument that the three leading provinces in Irish rugby are about as level with each other as, as they've ever been, really. Leinster's shaky performance, uh, well, one or two shaky performances they've probably had in the group campaign, the pool campaign, the hiding cup. But they show great stuff away from home, especially against Northampton. Munster had that awful opening game against Edinburgh, but sailed through the rest of their pool. It's Ulster we're interested in today, though. They've so far backed up encouraging progress of recent years. They're winning Leicester at the weekend. Sets them up quite well. They have a home quarter final against Saracens, first of all, the team who knocked them out last year, 2013. The man behind their resurgence is Director of Rugby, David Humphreys, who joins us now. I'm delighted to say, David, congratulations on securing the home quarter final. No Rabo games for a little bit now. Are you able to take a deep breath and think about things at the moment? <laughs> yeah, it's been a hectic few weeks. I think we've had a pretty tough run of games with Munster and Leinster and then uh, Europe with, with Montpellier and Leicester. So all our players are now off enjoying themselves for the next week or so. And the Irish players are in camp preparing for Six Nations, staff are all having a bit of time away. So, yes, it's an opportunity for everybody to sit back, reflect on uh, what's been a good few weeks, but also then to get our heads around what's going to be a long run in both the Rabo and then obviously building into the excitement of a Heineken Cup quarterfinal. A home Heineken Cup quarterfinal at that, David. Aside from the increased chances of winning a match when it's at home, statistically that looks... Uh, a lot more likely in the Heineken Cup quarterfinal. I think 75% of teams at home actually win. I know you're not going to start trying to big up your chances just because you're at Ravenhill, but can you talk to us about the significance for everybody involved in Ulster to actually just have this game, to have this huge Heineken Cup quarterfinal at your redeveloped home ground? I think that's, you've really summed up what, what, why it was such a big thing for us this year. Ravenhill, over the last 12, 15 months, has been, going under, uh, has been undergoing a pretty radical transformation a lot of building work and a lot of hard work has gone in to turn Ravenhill into a ground that's, that, that, that competes with lots of other stadia throughout Europe. So it's going to be timed well. The, the building work will all be completed or certainly all the external building work will be completed in time for the quarterfinal. And almost it's, it's, it's a huge opportunity for us to, to play the first game in a 18,000 capacity stadium and, and what's going to be a, a huge hugely important and hugely significant game for us. When you got involved in your current role as Director of Rugby, I think it was 2010, David, was this the sort of thing that you envisioned having Ulster right at the top table competing not only to be the best team in Ireland but competing to be the best team in Europe? Hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I would love to be able to sit, sit, sit here now and say we had that vision of, of where we'd like to go to. I think at the time, realistically, when you look where Ulster were at that stage, we'd lost a lot of our players. Um, we had pretty low-level crowds compared to Munster and Leinster who were, who were setting, setting the, the bar very high in both Europe but also in the domestic Celtic League competition. Um, you know, it's almost impossible to, to, to try and say, look, we could see where, where, where it was going. Shane Logan, our CEO, came in and all of a sudden there was a huge change in the mindset here and we set out some, a vision of where we wanted to be. We had certain targets along the road and... Um, you know, ultimately, this is where we wanted to be. We wanted to be back up in the top teams in Europe. But my view has always been, if we can compete with Munster and Leinster, automatically that will make us one of the top two, top few teams around. And um, slowly but surely, the gap's been closed. Uh, we're not there yet. We're still lagging a little bit behind. But hopefully, performances like last weekend, the amount of work that's gone on with our stadium the training facilities we have now, all those little bits are all adding to, to what we're trying to do here. And the, uh, ultimately, our goal is to make it as competitive as possible. From the outside, from a personal point of view, David, it looks to everybody that you seem to be really enjoying what you're doing there. What is it about the director of rugby role that appeals to you as opposed to going in as a coach, which a lot of former players do? I think there's, I never really had any ambition to be a coach. There's days I'd love to be back out in the pitch, don't get me wrong, but... For me, um, it was never something that I'd, I had planned to do. I had planned to go back into the career that I'd started before rugby went professional. And then the opportunity came came along to, to, to stay involved. And as I said, probably as part of the answer to the previous question, to me as someone who's incredibly passionate about Ulster rugby, it's been my life for the last 25 years, it was an opportunity to try and, and to try and do something which we, we would be our, try to be involved and turning things around. And as I said, we, we have done that. I do enjoy it. There's probably, it's fair to say, the 80 minutes on Saturday afternoon were as tough as any that I ever experienced as a player. I think when you're on the pitch, you feel you can influence. When you're sitting in the stand, you can't really do very much. But, you know, it's a good time to be involved in, in rugby. It's a good time to be involved in Ulster rugby. 
and it, it is a job that I enjoy doing. The skills that you've brought to it, are they informed more by your career that you referenced there as a solicitor or by your rugby playing career or a little bit of both? I think no matter what you do, you're influenced by everything that, that's gone before. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to, to, I consider myself very fortunate to have played rugby both in the amateur era and in the, in the professional era. In the amateur era, it allowed me to get get a qualification and prepare myself for what I thought would be a pretty short short rugby career. So you know, there's no doubt that those skills do help, but I think ultimately it's the experience of, of professional rugby over the last 15 years which is, is the most important part. And uh, that, that, that's what you rely on day to day, making decisions and then obviously trying to just drive the whole organisation forward. The signings that have been made in the last few years have attracted a lot of attention, a positive attention. I think everybody's been quite impressed with the... It's easy enough to sign a big name foreign player, for example, but you do have to get it right. And that seems to have gone very well. But I guess the future, to, particularly to, the, to Irish teams who can't just constantly go out and spend money, is to develop young players. Paddy Jackson would be a leading light in, in that regard. Is that, would, is that something that you would see as a key to the longer term to get these young guys and not just put them in the team, but believe in them? Paddy Jackson would be a good example of somebody who, very young still, has taken a bit of flack at times, but is clearly a guy that you guys believe in. If you were to ask me what would be the single biggest marker that would um, that would identify success of what we've done here, it would be 15 Ulstermen playing for Ulster. We 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 are one of the things that we would love to do is grow from within and, and have our academy producing players that allow us to compete at the very top level. At the minute, we're not there. That's why we, we rely very much on the foreign players we've brought in. But we've brought in players who who have obviously performed on the pitch, but they've brought a huge amount more. They've brought a huge amount off the pitch um, in terms of how they approach playing and how they, they have marketed Ulster rugby throughout the community. So there's a whole lot of different aspects to it. But ultimately, for us, our academy is, is what we build our long-term success on. And that's why over the last two or three years, we have invested heavily. We, we don't have a... Disappointingly for us, we've only two players in the Irish under-20s this year because that obviously is, is again, a marker... Um, as to your, the quality of your player coming through. But then you look at the age profile of some of the names, uh, the name you mentioned, Paddy Jackson, but you also look at Craig Gilroy, Luke Marshall, Stuart Olding, and the forwards, Ian Henderson. There are a number of very good players who have now been capped by Ireland who are in our system and hopefully will provide the backbone of this team for the next 10 years. But as I said, we, we do need quality coming in from outside to, to allow us to compete against the, the big teams throughout Europe. It's a great ambition, having 15 Ulster players filling all the positions. Is that something that you've put a time frame on there? I don't think you can put a time frame on it. All you can do is, we, when initially, we, or four or five years ago, our first goal was we need to get a team playing in Ravenhill or representing Ulster that's competitive every time they play. Home or away, they've got to be competitive. They've got to start winning at Ravenhill. We need success at that level. If we get success at that level, more people will come and watch. You know, Sponsorship will increase. And if we can do that, that the money that that generates will allow us to uh, continue to invest in our academy. So over the last two years, building on the success of the previous couple of seasons, we have now invested heavily in our academy. We have now got training facilities that are comparable to to most teams throughout Europe, which again provides a, a, an atmosphere and an environment which will allow young players to come in and be inspired to play professional rugby, be inspired to play professional rugby for Ulster. So there's there's, there's a huge number of different areas that we're trying to target, but we're, we're working in yeah. the here and now, which is the team on the pitch, but we're also working incredibly hard in the background um, with our academy and trying to develop those next generation of players who, 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 who will play for Ulster in Ireland. It's a really interesting aspiration, David. I'm just wondering, is there a small downside to that scenario in that you lose the bit of nous, the bit of knowledge, the bit of uh, point of difference that comes with the really top foreign guys? And every, every province has had people coming from abroad that haven't worked out, but the likes of, uh, come back to Pienaar, these kind of people, yep. do you not always maybe need one or two people like that to come into your club just to provide that, that little bit of almost life experience? Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I think why we have an aspiration to play um, have 15 Ulstermen representing Ulster we fully recognise that that's not something that's going to happen in the short term it's all about the culture that you develop here and, and you're absolutely right, the culture that you have here can't just be how we perceive professional sport, how we perceive rugby, it is about the players who've experienced success at top level international rugby, have experienced success in, in, in very different rugby environments and what they bring 
um, it is a huge part to developing all of the players. So you're right. So whether or not there's 15 Ulster players representing Ulster in the pitch, I do believe you'll have people who will be here, whether it's your coaches, whether it's your backroom staff, who are able to provide the challenges that sometimes when you're so close in and so involved, you maybe don't always see. With those foreign signings, is there anything particular that is common to the successful ones? Is there one or two characteristics that you need to see in somebody who's coming to Ulster? I think if you ask anybody who, 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 who's involved in recruitment, there are so many different variables that you don't always get it right. One of the things that I think we have probably changed our view on is that, it's yes, of course, we need a, a certain level of rugby player, but it's the quality of person that you bring in who, who are willing to buy into what we're trying to do in Ulster, because even though it's very different from what they've maybe experienced before, they're committed to it and right behind it. So for us... I can only give you the way the change that we have had that that, that probably has has made the biggest difference. That in the past we would often just have signed players through agents without meeting them, without talking to them, explaining to them what what being from Ulster meant, the identity that comes with playing here. So now, over the last four or five years, everybody we've signed, we've met, we've gone and we've met them, whether at, no matter where they were in the world, or they've come across here and had a look around, so that they're coming in with a very clear view on what. Or, or with a very clear expectation of what's going to be be in Ulster, but also we have a very clear expectation of how we think they will integrate into the group, both on the field, but equally importantly, if not more importantly, off the field. In dealing with those younger players, is it important to make clear that you will be patient with guys, uh, say Paddy Jackson, the name I mentioned there, Look, we trust this guy. We're going to put him into a Heineken Cup final. Yep. It, it, you know, he's not necessarily... It may go well, it may not go brilliantly. You can't know on a given day, but this is how much we trust that guy. And even if he doesn't shine today, we know that he's there for the future. Is that one of the key things? Just making sure that the young lads know that one bad game in a big tournament or you know a couple of a bad stretch isn't going to mean that they're finished. I think that that applies to any player. Yes, of course it applies to to the young players coming in to give them a run of of of, of games to allow them to establish themselves. But it also applies to your your senior players. Everybody has one, two, three bad games, but. If you're selecting somebody, if you're picking somebody and you believe that they have the, the ability to perform at the, at the top level, you give them every opportunity to, to do that. And ultimately, as long as it doesn't affect team performance, as long as it doesn't affect the direction in which we are trying to go, that they will be given plenty of time to prove themselves, establish themselves, and hopefully go on to be really successful professional rugby players at both provincial level, but equally importantly, if not, again, more importantly, at international level. You did say it's about the here and now also, David. You can't necessarily only be thinking about what it's going to be like in a few years' time. With that in mind, uh, home quarterfinal against Saracens, coached by Mark McCall. They knocked you out last year. There are a lot of subplots in this one. Have you been chatting to Mark? Is that how it works? Do you have a few, <laughs> yes, a few talks? Mark and I have been very good friends for a long time now. And, um, and A rugby match will certainly never come in the way of the friendship that we've developed during that time. You know, We, we, had, we were disappointed with our performance last year, but... Saracens are, are the top team in England. Their level of performance um, week in, week out makes them a pretty tough opposition. Um, but at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to to redress what happened last year. We were very disappointed with, with our performance in the quarterfinal at Twickenham. And um, bringing them back to Ravenhill gives us that opportunity to, 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 to perform at the level we know we can. And, you know, as we say so many times, it's about going out. Of course, you want to win the game. But really... You go out as long as you perform to your very best. You know you can walk away with your head held high. Last year we didn't do that. Absolutely. Well, we wish you well for the rest of the season and for those quarterfinals. David, great to chat to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. That idea of having 15 Ulster players is quite a striking one, really. I, I suppose a lot of us would look at Ulster at the moment and see how important the foreign players are to what they're doing. And I don't think David Humphries is trying to deny that that is the case at the moment, but it looks like he's trying to move it in a different direction over the next number of years. Simon Hick has joined us to chat a bit about this, Simon. Um, he seems to know what he's doing there. Yeah, in the research for this, I just had a little look over Ulster's history, which you'd be vaguely aware of, but when... You go into the specifics of it and see what the effect that David Humphreys has had on Ulster Rugby. It's pretty incredible. He obviously captained them in 99 when they won the Heineken Cup. Um, and then he, he played on for a few more years. They were nowhere near as successful. But um, when he came back in as director of rugby in 2010, 
they hadn't even made a quarter. So they won in 99. They didn't make a single quarterfinal from that point until when David Humphreys came back in as director of rugby. They immediately made a quarterfinal. Uh, they made a final, obviously, when they lost to Leinster. Um, and they made another two quarterfinals uh, last year and this mm-hmm. year. Last year, away to Saracens, uh, didn't work out so well. But this is their first home quarterfinal. It's, it's an unbelievable graph when you throw David Humphreys into the mix. Um, and then when you throw in all the different areas that he's influenced... Um, they're probably the most improved uh, side in Europe uh, on the field. They've uh, grown their fan base and they've a redeveloped stadium. Uh, they brought in new coaches, seems to be pretty successful. They've made the, probably the best value for money foreign signings of um, any director rugby or any uh, club has done in Europe. Um, and they're now... For, I suppose from an Irish point of view, starting to produce players who are going to make a real impact yeah. in the next six nations. And that's kind of the key of some of what we were talking about there this aspiration to have 15 Irish players, 15 Ulster players, ultimately, is that feasible? Do you always need one or two foreign people there just to, as I put it to him, just to have that little bit of outside experience? Leinster have fielded a few teams in the last couple of years that are all either Irish qualified, not necessarily Irish born, but Irish qualified. Um, And their academy now is absolutely churning out players in every single position. Um, and it wasn't doing that even five, six years ago. So the Ulster Academy is starting to bear a bit of fruit. David mentioned there that the under-20s only has two or three Ulster guys on it, but ultimately there is Marshall and Gilroy and, and all these guys coming through. Um, it's feasible maybe for Leinster because they've a bigger playing population, bigger schools population, etc. Um, but it's something you could do once or twice a season for Ulster, maybe in a Rabo game. But I think... More importantly, it's just that idea that there's there will be brilliant Ulster players. Say Paddy Jackson goes on to play for Ireland for a few years, or Gilroy is on the wing for a few years, that the next guy coming up sees a brilliant Irish player yeah. as opposed to a brilliant so South African. So it's not PNR they're looking at. They're looking at Craig Gilroy, whoever it might be. And exactly. Going, uh, be as Leinster lads are now looking at Heasley and O'Brien and going, She's, that's the best in the world. Maybe I could be that. And he's Irish. Thanks, Simon. No worries. Thanks, Ken. I'm pretty surprised that nobody's wished Brian O'Driscoll a happy birthday. Is it his birthday today? 35, Alan. 35. Happy birthday to Brian O'Driscoll. Murphy, if you'd like to come back over, you were helping on the production side of things with Simon sitting here. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Simon. Thanks much for listening. Do check us out on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. We'll talk to you a little bit later on with uh, Second Captains Football, which will include Richie's studio. Talk to you later on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 